Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. The administration keeps its economic agenda alive. The inflation debate continues and earnings, well, they just keep chugging along. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. had another week consumed negotiations back and forth over President Biden's economic agenda, all within the Democratic Party, with President Biden announcing a framework just as he got out of town for his trip to Europe for the G20 and the COP26 summits. These plans are fiscally responsible. They are fully paid for. They don't add a single penny to the deficit. And whatever ultimately gets passed into law for infrastructure and Build Back Better, this week continued the debate over inflation, with two of those who should know best directly taking one another on. When Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen disagreed on CNN with what Larry Summers had said right here on Wall Street Week about the problem of inflation. We are going through a period of inflation that's higher than Americans have seen in a long time. And it's something that's obviously a concern and worrying them. But we haven't lost control. And Larry came right back at Janet Yellen on Twitter saying, until the Fed and Treasury fully recognize the inflation reality, they are unlikely to deal with it successfully. 
But for all the talk of more fiscal stimulus and inflation, the week on Global Wall Street was really given over to earnings, particularly those from big tech. Here's Apple's Tim Cook. We are optimistic about the future, especially as we see strong demand for our new products. And also from the auto companies, here's GM's Mary Barra. We're selling every vehicle we can make, and I think that, uh, along with uh, you know, the overall environment, is what allowed us to have a beat for the quarter. And when it came to equities, those earnings were enough to pull out a win, with the S&P 500 up 6.9% for the month, making this October the best for the index in six years, while the Nasdaq was up 2.4% for the week, and the bond yield curve flattened somewhat, with the short end moving up and the 10-year yield coming down under 1.6 this week. To take us through what the markets had to teach us this week, welcome now Katie Koch, Goldman Sachs co-head of Fundamental Equity Funds, and Kate El Hillo. She's is Russell Investments Chief Investment Officer. Kate, welcome to Wall Street Week. Congratulations on your promotion, by the way. Give us a sense of what you saw in the markets this week. As I say, the equities did really, really well, despite the fact they had a little headwind from a couple of the big tech companies. Yeah, David, thanks so much for having me. And you know, earnings season are about 50% of the way through, and it has been, it's been good. I mean, not great like we saw in Q1 and Q2, but 85% of the companies beating, so it's still above you know, kind of the average. Uh, but I'd say the one big caveat uh, we would flag is around, you know, company guidance. And you know, a lot of that had been focused around a lot of supply chain issues and other, you know, impacts that pricing power initially, you know, for the companies that can do it should be able to work through. Um, but that is something to continue to look out for as we go into Q4. Uh, you know, I think for companies that did miss, they uh, have gotten hit reasonably hard. And so while we've seen the market react overall well to earnings, you know, an average 4% down for companies that you know, aren't meeting expectations. And so from our point of view, you know, kind of healthy spread between winners and losers is um, a really good opportunity for active management and really starting to dig into some of the differentiation that we expect to see going forward. So, so, Katie, let's talk about tech for a second, because we had so many big tech earnings out this week. A lot of them positive, but then we had the Amazon and Apple, which really were a hiccup, one of which was really supply chain yeah. in the case of Apple. The other was really more labor yeah. in the case of Amazon. Did it tell us anything in the longer term about big tech driving this market, which it has done for so long? I know. They, um, they did disappoint, but I, I just to put take Apple for a second. People are disappointed, but they should remember iPhone sales were still up 46% year over year. So there still is good growth there, but expectations of course, were for 53%. I think what you've seen there is very specific to what you just said, and maybe we can unpack it later, which is supply chain issues and also labor. Um, and we don't think that that's going to, that we think that's an issue that they can actually get over. Um, other interesting trends that we're focused on in, in tech earnings generally would be, um, I could maybe t touch on payments as an example, and what's happening in the finance space. I'm really interested in the third quarter um, of this year as being kind of the first quarter that we've seen the potential for how much disruption we think is coming at the financial sector. Just for context, um, there's $16 trillion of market capitalization in financials uh, compared to, for example, $14 trillion of market capitalization in the internet. And we are on the precipice of seeing major disruption across that whole sector. We saw some big losers um, get printed in the third quarter. So um, the merchant acquirer sector, if you look at the earnings of those companies, they disappointed a lot because they're getting disintermediated by companies like Shopify or Toast, for example. 
example, that are offering those services better product, better pricing. And then on the winning side, and I'll end my comments there, but in terms of winners in this space, um, you would look at uh, buy now, pay later, um, which, as my husband says to me, isn't that just the same thing as a credit card? What's, <laughs> what's buy now, pay later? But effectively, what it's great product for the millennial and Gen Z consumer, you basically pay on deferred payments. Um, there's no late fee, and there's actually no interest charged either. And the reason it works is because they charge the merchants uh, a higher fee. And those merchants tolerate that higher fee because they're getting a bigger addressable market and higher volume. Now, of course, we need to go through a credit cycle uh, to see if this is a durable business model, but they're taking tremendous market share from traditional banks. Kate, thank you so much for being with us. That's Kate L. Hillo. She is Russell Investments CIO. Katie Kacha Goldman Sachs will be staying with us as we focus specifically on supply chains and how prominently they have figured this week in those earnings reports. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA, SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. If earnings were the big story this week, supply chain difficulties were the constant narrative through all of those reports, as we heard from the CEOs of Raytheon, GM, and Carrier. We're not immune from the challenges of supply chain. In fact, we talked about this morning on our earnings call. The fact is, we'll probably see almost $300 million of lower revenues this year because we can't get material into our shops and we can't get the labor that we need. It will linger into next year and we're um, right now our, our feeling is we'll be uh, in a much better shape in the second half of 2022. And we're also taking steps uh, over the medium term to make sure we're never seeing this kind of constraint, not only with chips, but with other, you know, whether it's critical materials or just the overall supply chain, because we have an aggressive growth strategy in front of us and we're going to make sure that we can execute it. So it's a very, it's a near term problem um, that we'll work through. Well, supply demand is really out of whack. You see it in chips. Whenever you have to buy chips from on the brokerage market, it's always going to be painful and expensive. We see it on raw materials, copper price, steel, aluminum. So we're seeing a lot of pressures on raw materials and tier one, tier two pricing, but we're managing it through price increases. And we're having to be very aggressive on things like GNA, having to be very creative on how we manage logistics. 
Katie Hatcher, Goldman Sachs, has remained with us so we can talk about supply chains. So I heard about it all week long yeah. from CEO after CEO. Tell us about supply chains. Where are we? So two main takeaways, I think, from this earnings season. We, I've also been speaking to a lot of CEOs. And the first is that it is very clear that unit growth has been constrained by supply chain issues. So we'll talk a lot about tech, but let me talk about something very different from tech. Let's talk about pools. We love pools. We've liked them for a while. They've been big pandemic beneficiaries. Our pool CEOs, the ones building the pools and the supply, that's the ones supplying the pools, believe that unit growth could have been 50% higher without the supply chain issues they're, they're facing. Um, the supply itself and of materials and also the labor, um, because of, we're facing a great resignation in this country and we currently have the lowest labor force participation rate since World War II. So that's a big problem. So that all goes under unit growth is constrained. Um, and then the, the, second issue, the, the, the second thing that I would highlight um, is something that Mary said I think is really, really important. What she said is that, uh, what I heard her say is that over the longer term, they're going to address this issue because they need to be positioned for growth. And I think what she means by that is that they're going to have to reshore some of this capacity and focus on supply chain resilience. And it is, it is my view that actually Wall Street has probably put too much pressure on companies to optimize their supply chain. And we're going to get a, ver a much better balance going forward between that supply chain optimization and the resilience that become very obvious that we need. So there are a couple of issues there, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the, is where do you get the materials from? Yeah. Uh, we relied upon some countries perhaps too much. We have to diversify on that. Yeah. The other is how much inventory we maintain. Just yeah. in time was very popular for a long time, yeah. very efficient for a lot of companies. Yeah. Uh, is this going to affect margins going forward? If we make those adjustments to supply chains, it yeah. may cost more money. I, it will. And it will impact margins most likely, and we're going to have to kind of get used to that. Um, but of course, we need the top line to come through too. And if people want to sell product, they need to have inventory. So again, it's going to come back to the balance of these two things. I do think there's an incredible investment opportunity, and our team believes there's an incredible investment opportunity in investing in the companies that are going to help reshore um, some of the manufacturing capacity of the United States of America. And so there I would point to you heard all those people are dependent on chips. Chips fuel the world. They're fueling the technological advancement that we're seeing across all sectors. And so we can't be dependent on that just from another corner of the world. We're going to have to take some of that manufacturing capacity here. So we love uh, chip manufacturing equipment. So back when I was running a budget, mm -hmm. Cap Cities and at Disney, yeah. one of the questions I'd ask every quarter if we were down is, is this a timing issue mm -hmm. or have we permanently lost this revenue for some point? Mm -hmm. Let me ask you that question about supply chains. When you see it down because of the units, as you described, yeah. is that demand waiting for when the supply is there mm -hmm. or could we lose some of the demand? Yeah. So in other words, are people still going to buy pools and iPhones? Yeah, exactly. And I believe they will. Um, and they're just going to have to wait a little bit longer. Now, of course, that requires us to have a reasonable economic backdrop. So that, with that caveat, but they will. And in the iPhone space, if you had to wait longer, you're not going to switch to another provider. You will go out and buy that iPhone. So in some ways, we, we know that that demand has been kicked into to next year. But again, these companies still have to position themselves for the long-term runway of growth, and they will invest in the reshoring of their supply chains. So, Katie, with just about every CEO I talked yeah. to, the supply chain discussion came right up with cost increases yeah. and inflation. It yeah. raises the question, okay, is this last well into 2022, mm -hmm. which it seems clearly it will. Some people say even into late 2022. Mm -hmm. What possible effect might that have on inflation? Because a lot of the CEOs we've talked to said, we raised prices. Yeah, absolutely. And so, of course, you want to be with the companies that have the pricing power to pass that through. Um, I'd say three quick things. I am. We are in the camp that these supply chain issues last throughout 2020. 
2022. There's not there's not an easy fix for them, um, and and there's an investment opportunity on the back of that, which we which we talked about. Um, the second thing I would say is that the inflation in the labor space is is real. Um, we've talked you and I have talked a little bit about this before, but we have failed to pass minimum wage in this country for many decades. We've now actually jumped over minimum wage because we've had to bid people back into the labor market. Now the question that we have to really think about is is that been a one-time reset in wages? Or are we going to get upward, continued upward pressure? And time will time will tell on that. But both of those suggest a higher cost structure. And I wonder whether our wage increases actually are lagging. Because if you mm -hmm. look at the consumer price index, yeah. uh, it is going up faster yep. than the wages are. Wages are going up, but not as fast. Does that mean we're going to have to catch up at some point and we're going to have even more wage increases? Well, that's how you get inflation, right? But it's that's very right. it's very determinant on on get that up, sticky upward pressure of, of wages going up, which will put, you know, how that uh, cycle works going forward. But, but does that affect which companies you want to invest in, in the sense that some are more yeah. sensitive to that uh, that wage inflation than others are? Yeah, so I would say right now we see a very healthy consumer. Um, they're benefiting from higher wages, um, and we're seeing that come out in the data. If you look at credit card data, just to, to show you the health of the consumer and why we like the consumer, um, we have American Express publishes spending trends. Spending is up 36 percent versus 2019. So we've had a big, big jump in spending. Um, the other thing I just want to say about consumer in terms of where we're focused, it's the millennial and Gen Z consumer that are driving a lot of that increase because they like experiences over things. And it's safe now to go out and have experiences. And they also have a higher risk tolerance around experiences than baby boomers. Baby boomer spending, according to American Express data, is actually down 6 percent relative to 2019. So we see health in the consumer that's repaired their balance sheet, has firepower, and we're very much um, leaning into those consumer companies that have pricing power and can benefit from a healthier consumer. Okay, thank you yeah. so much, Katie. It's always great to have you, particularly in the studio now. Yeah. That is Katie Koch. In of, real life. In real life, exactly. <laughs> we're not in the metaverse, right? Not we're we're metaverse. here together. That's Katie Koch from Goldman Sachs. Coming up, the inflation hedge you may not have thought much about. The beauty of owning land, especially when it's farmland, with Nuveen CEO Jose Manaya. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Inflation. It's all the talk these days among investors because of what it could do to your portfolio, as Nancy Davis of Quadratic Capital explains. Inflation is a risk to every investor portfolio because it reduces purchasing power. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen took to the airwaves on CNN to disagree with our own Larry Summers about how long it will last. But while people are debating the size of the problem, investors are left to make sure they're protected against the downside, looking for what Bob Prince calls inflation hedge assets. You want inflation hedge assets because it's very likely that the, that the rise in interest rates will lag inflation and lag the economy. The Fed doesn't really want to get ahead of it. Ranging from things like gold to things like cryptocurrency, according to Larry Summers. Bitcoin has had some emergence as digital gold. The thing you want to hold if you're worried about inflation. One asset that might get overlooked is farmland. Historically, farmland returns have outpaced inflation in a variety of market environments, providing returns more than double the inflation rate for decades. And right now, the farming sector is booming. 
is a really robust story, right? Uh, net farm income is projected by the Department of Agriculture to be up 20% uh, to a level of $113 million, which is a level we haven't seen since uh, 2013. So in aggregate, on average across the country, that's a really good story. We welcome now to Wall Street Week, one of those who is focused on farmland investing as a sensible hedge against inflation. Jose Manaya is the CEO of Nuveen, which manages over $1 trillion in assets. Welcome, Jose. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me, David. So, so you really are introducing me to this whole idea about farmland as a hedge against inflation. Tell me how you came to it and how you think of it today. You know, we came through it through our traditional portfolio uh, construction process, right? We were looking for assets that brought attractive correlation benefits to, uh, to our portfolio. We were looking to smooth out volatility. We're looking to kind of find a good hedge against inflation and also looking at total returns that more, were more skewed towards uh, income, income returns. And we found that in farmland, but what made farmland really attractive to, to us, I always say is one of the best investment theses I've come across because it's as simple as people need to eat. <laughs> Yet what we found was you have a inelastic demand supply, right? It's one that uh, the populations are growing, middle classes, uh, the middle class is growing. It takes 10 pounds of grain to make one pound of protein. So they're, as they're consuming more protein, that demand is, continues to be pushed and it, it accelerates. You look at the supply side, it's also inelastic because they're not making any more land. If anything, production is being trained by environmental factors. So when you combine that, it made for a perfect place where we can fit in our portfolio construction. So give us a sense of the return from this sort of investment over the longer term, because I've seen some pretty staggering numbers. And you know, and obviously like many, like many different investments, there are different risk return profiles. But for us, typically, we're, we're seeking, call it mid to high single digit returns. If you say eight to 10, eight to 10% returns, half of that is coming from income, the other half is coming from, from capital appreciation. And the lower return is because there's different risk profiles, right? We, we go to the areas that we're more protected against natural disaster issues or climate change. Uh, water is a key factor in this asset class. And you can, you can mitigate that risk by going to areas that have more a better source of water. They're gonna be more expensive. Your cap rates or returns are gonna be lower. But again, we're not investing in farmland or really alternatives in general for an outsized return. We're really looking for where can we find some of that stable, stable income with, with good uh, protection of our principal. Right? When I think about farmland, we're buying land that is producing an essential need for society into perpetuity. Um, so that gives me really strong intrinsic value. So it's almost like owning a AAA bond, yet I'm getting a four plus or so percent coupon on that particular asset that has really been stable through the years from a volatility perspective. Jose, compare and contrast a little bit this asset class from other alternatives on two different matrices. One of them is stability. You just said volatility. Uh, how does it compare in terms of volatility? And the other is we're all talking about inflation right now and how we're going to protect against inflation. How does farmland do? You know, well, farmland, again, how it compares to other asset classes today is that it's, it's not as further along in terms of its access to capital markets, right? When you look at sharp ratios, for example, farmland really pops relative to another real asset like real estate. That, a lot of that has to do with liquidity and access to capital. If you, look at far, if you looked at real estate 50, 60 plus years ago, it had around a similar profile in terms of who were the owners of those assets. Today, you and I can go to talk to an advisor or a broker and get exposure to real estate. You can't do that in farmland as much. So that, again, that inefficiency kind of adds to the alpha and the excess returns that we can derive from, from, from that asset. 
And then ultimately, it's a commodity. So from an inflation perspective, that dynamic of inelastic demand, inelastic supply, right? As that, as that stretches and commodity prices typically go up and follow inflation, it's proved to be a very, very strong uh, you know, hedge against inflation. Jose Manaya, thank you so very much. He's Nuveen CEO here on Wall Street Week. Coming up, we wrap up the week once again with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA, SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We're delighted to welcome once again our special contributor to Wall Street Week. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. Larry, thanks for being back with us. Let's start with what happened actually on Thursday. Just as the president was leaving to go over to Europe, he announced what he called a framework uh, for something on his Build Back Better plan. Not clear how that's going to develop, what's going to turn into law, but let's assume it was enacted just as it's proposed, described by the White House. What would it do in macroeconomic terms? What would it do to growth? What would it do to inflation? I don't think the effects are likely to be large in the very short run, but I think over the medium term it'll be a positive for growth because it'll expand the capacity of the economy and I think there might be some benefit in terms of inflation. I don't think it's likely to be large. Uh, I think there are a number of important investments there, including in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which will come uh, along uh, with it. I think there are some uh, movements to promote clean energy, which ultimately, I think, can help uh, our economy. I think it's a very positive thing that it's, there's a significant increase in revenue that matches the increases in uh, expenditure. So I certainly hope that uh, this bill uh, will pass. It's uh, far from perfect, but I think it's a real achievement and is in many ways one of the most significant pieces of economic legislation we've had. It might be the most significant between the two bills piece of economic uh, legislation we've had in the 21st century so far. So, Larry, you mentioned how it's going to get paid for, uh, the proposals at least, uh, on taxes, and you saw at the very end they backed off of the so-called billionaire's tax, which is actually a proposed tax on the on the uh, appreciation of assets held by people rather than income. They now have sort of a surcharge on multimillionaires, as they call them, as well as a minimum corporate tax of 15%. Is that, as a matter of tax policy, a more sensible way to go? 
I thought the billionaire's tax was not the right thing uh, to do. I thought the mark-to-market capital gains aspect was impracticable, and I thought the general idea of targeting a few hundred people for a special tax was something that didn't fit with my sense of the right uh, values. Much better to have a broader base tax. Frankly, David, what I think is disturbing is that in the way this bill is likely to pass, it's not completely clear yet, depending on what happens to state and local uh, taxation, there will be a large number of people with incomes of, say, eight or nine million dollars who are going to see their taxes uh, go down. And I'm not sure that this was a time when people in the top tenth of a percent of the income distribution, top hundredth of a percent of the income distribution, should be getting uh, tax cuts. And so I'm disappointed that in a bill that's passing only with Democratic support. So, Larry, let's talk about the overall economy here. We got numbers out this week showing that growth was slowing, as people expected, but it slowed a bit more than we thought in the third quarter in terms of GDP. At the same time, core PCE continues to move up, uh, and we've talked about inflation a fair amount. You were certainly in the news this week because, actually, on Sunday, CNN played for Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary. One of the things you said on Wall Street Week right here, she disagreed with it, and then you disagreed with her on Twitter. Take us into that debate that you're having right now with the Treasury Secretary. Look, I, I have enormous respect uh, for Secretary Yellen, and I hope her judgments about inflation prove uh, to be uh, correct. Um, I have the view that we've got substantial risks right now. It seems to me that almost everyone is experiencing a shortage of something. Almost every employer is having trouble finding uh, workers. Those seem to me to be uh, the conditions for inflation to take a ratchet up from the 2% level we've been used to. And I think that's going to happen, and it's going to happen with an indefinite horizon unless somebody does something pretty strong to stop it or unless we have some kind of financial accident. That's the position uh, that I've been uh, trying to make. I was glad to see uh, Secretary Yellen recognize that uh, certainly out to the second half of next year, um, so that's almost a year from now, nine months, uh, we're, we're in agreement in expecting inflation uh, well above 2%. I was very glad to see that. We'll see what happens uh, after that. Certainly a lot can happen, uh, both in terms of policy and in terms of the economy until then. But right now, uh, I see a variety of uh, things suggesting that inflation may accelerate, starting from uh, the tremendous shortage of labor that we're dealing with, which is, I think, what held the economy back in terms of the GDP growth figures. 
So let's talk about those two things, both how long it's going to last into 2022 and the shortage of labor, because we've had a lot of earnings out this week, and we hear from CEO after CEO about problems with supply chain, and particularly on labor. In fact, we saw Amazon actually disappoint the markets because they say they're going to have to spend a lot of money to get the people they need to deliver things in Christmas. What is the importance of going in, into 2022, into the middle of 22, maybe even after that? How long does that affect the economy? You know, we'll have to see. We'll have to see at what rate um, labor supply comes back. And if labor supply comes back, when it comes back, if it does, we'll have to see how much that adds to spending power. You know, if more people start working, then more people are going to be earning and more people are going to be spending. And so in terms of the supply-demand balance, it may not get us ahead. Um, by that large uh, a margin. So my own view uh, is to be quite concerned that we're ratcheting up to uh, a new kind of level of wage expectations. Larry, finally, uh, as you know, we've got a G20 summit going on in Rome this weekend and then followed by the COP26 in Glasgow. What do you hope, what do you expect might come out of that in concrete terms on two fronts? One is the climate, but the other, one of the things they have to address is really vaccination and getting our arms around the pandemic globally. I hope we're going to see commitments on funding for vaccines commitments on some kind of governance structure so that it's better managed the next time and so we're focused on preventing the next global pandemic. And I hope we're going to see substantial commitments where there's a meaningful prospect of enforcement on uh, the climate uh, front. I'm not optimistic right now that we're going to see as much progress as I think future historians will think we needed on either global health or vaccines. But let's see what happens. A lot can always happen in the course of these meetings. So let me be very concrete for a moment. Uh, when we talk about trying to keep it down to 1.5 degrees centigrade, do they need to come out of COP26 with specific commitments about eliminating the use of coal at some date in the future? It would certainly be very helpful, or they need to come out with some set of commitments on what they're going to get done in terms of being able to take carbon out of the atmosphere. We are not currently on a credible trajectory to anything like 1.5. I think it would be a minor miracle if coming out of COP, we were committed to such a trajectory and the sand is running through the hourglass. Okay, well, we'll have to watch that. Thank you so much to Larry. It's always great to have you with us. It's Larry Summers of Harvard, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. Finally, one more thought. A trillion dollars just ain't what it used to be. The late senator from Illinois, Everett Dirksen, famously said, a billion here, a billion there, pretty sure you're talking about real money. Well, at least some people remember that he said it. There's no real record that he did say that. But this week, we were talking about a thousand times that billion as Democrats struggled to get their spending package down under $2 trillion. You hear these numbers, $3.5 trillion or $1.75 trillion? We pay for it all. It doesn't increase the deficit one single cent. So let's get to work. And the key senator, Joe Manchin, pointed out that all of World War II and the Marshall Plan cost the United States only about $4.7 trillion in current dollars. And we've already blown way past that in the last year and a half before adding another 
We saved the world in World War II. We rebuilt Europe on today's dollars at 4.7. We've already spent 5.4. And we're about ready to spend a heck of a lot more. But it wasn't just the government this week who was talking about trillions of dollars. Tesla blew past the trillion dollar market cap number, making Elon Musk a quarter trillionaire. It wasn't just the T word that connected Tesla with Congress this week. When lawmakers went looking for some way to pay for some of those new programs they want to adopt, they quickly focused on the very wealthy. People, yes, you guessed it, just like Elon Musk. At first, they came up with something called the billionaire's tax, which actually is not a tax on income at all, but a tax on the increased value of assets held by billionaires. That is something that made Republicans like Mitch McConnell apoplectic over the unfairness of it all. Our Democratic colleagues and President Biden are behind closed doors dreaming up creative new ways to grab literally historic amounts of the American people's money. But then again, Democrats like Sherrod Brown of Ohio said it would only be fair. We've seen executive compensation explode upward. We've seen profits go up. Wages have been flat. And Congress has rarely been on the side of workers. This Congress in these two bills were clearly on the side of workers into fixing that. Democrats may have backed off of that so-called billionaire's tax, but they replaced it with a multimillionaire's surtax. Because in the end, them that's got shall get. But you may have to give some of it back. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.